Welcome to the Grace and Common podcast, a conversation between four friends, four theologians from four countries on three continents. We meet together week by week to record this podcast, to talk about neo-Calvinist theology, to talk about culture, to talk about history, life, and ideas. And we're glad to have you join us for this episode. My name is James Eglinton. I teach theology at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Joined today by my co-hosts, Marinus de Jong from the Osterpark Kirk in Amsterdam, and also um, he's a researcher at the Neo-Calvinism Research Institute in Kampen Utrecht. Grace Utanto, um, originally of Indonesia, now a professor of systematic theology at Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and Corey Brock, um, one of the pastors of St. Columba's Free Church here also in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, he is originally from Natchez, Mississippi. We're glad to have you join us for this episode of Grace in Common. This week, we're continuing our discussion of themes that we are taking from Corey and Gray's new book, Neo-Calvinism, A Theological Introduction, published this year by Lexham Press. And we're moving on to a discussion prompted by chapter seven of the book, which is on the image of God and the fall. Um, I think we, well, we were talking about um, the chapter before we started recording, and um, Marinus and I both, as not as authors of this book, um, just as, as completely unbiased readers, we both loved this chapter. I think it's possibly my favorite chapter in the book. And I think what I enjoyed about it so much is that it, it has this balance and this blend of showing that neo-Calvinism, if we're thinking about it through Bavink and Kuyper, on topics like the image of God and uh, and the fall into sin, it's really deeply rooted in a broader, older, wider Catholic Christian tradition, and it's very recognizable within that. But at the same time, they highlight that the tradition also makes one quite distinctive and really uh, you know novel and theologically very useful um, innovation or development within that tradition, um, which is thinking about the image of God in relation to the Trinity and thinking about the image of God collectively for humans together. Um, but also the chapter has some rabbit trails that you can go down, um, because when we're talking about Bavink and especially Abraham Kuyper, um, Kuyper has... Just when you get to know his thinking, you find him sometimes having very idiosyncratic, sometimes quite odd, some like sometimes quite surprising theological um, thoughts and rabbit trails that he goes down. And there's some really interesting um, examples of that in this chapter. Um, and one of them is thinking through the question of um, the fall as it affected angels and the fall as it affected humans and why in Christian theology, angels fallen angels are irredeemable and there's no gospel for them uh, whereas fallen humans are redeemable and there's gospel for us uh, that that's the kind of question that you know it's a it's a perennial one within christian theology with trying to understand the difference between the two and um in this chapter there's an example of kuiper having a, a, a quite a creative and, and fascinating way to think through the logic or the theologic behind that so the chapter has all kinds of um, things between very recognizable, broader traits, um, very useful, a very useful novel contribution, um, but also some, um, yeah, some surprising twists and turns. And I think it's also a bit of a springboard into other aspects of Kuiper's thought too. That um, that I'd I'd love to squeeze into this conversation if we can. That aren't part of the chapter, but that that come from it. Uh, I'm I'm really fascinated in particular by Kuiper's very as far as i'm aware i think it's it's quite unique but maybe you guys have 
read other figures, um, so you can tell me that it's not. But Kuiper's handling of Adam and Eve before the fall um, as um, as miracle makers, in effect, as humans who don't need to fear death because they have this creative power in their human nature, their unfallen human natures, where they can um, cause storms to cease and and heal one another's bodies and so on if they, if they were to get injured. So they don't need to live with fear in this world where... Um, where nature it could be quite a frightening thing, but it doesn't need to be for the unfallen image of God. So um, maybe we can get onto that at some point in the conversation. Um, but Greg, could you tell us uh, in the first place um, how neo-Calvinism, let's say, let, let's balance out um, its continuity with older Christian tradition on the Imago Dei and the fall and, and its novelty. And maybe if I can put a question to you uh, to start this off, when I teach um, first and second year introduction to systematic theology courses here in Edinburgh. One of the units that we do covers the Imago Dei. And a common experience that students have in that kind of course, when I get them to read key scriptural texts in the image of God, so we're talking about you know Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 9, um, some texts, a couple of references in the, in the New Testament as well, and then I get them to read um, a range of figures from the history of the church. So we look at Augustine, and they read Aquinas and Calvin, and um, and get them to read some social trinitarians from much more um, recent times. And students quite often feel a bit bewildered by the tradition. Um, and then you know, if they read a figure like David Kelsey, whose book Eccentric Existence is it's a systematic theology written through the lens of theological anthropology, and it's and it's massive. It's um, it's a two volume work, and the surprising thing when I get students to read this, the surprising thing for them is that they they don't read the entirety of it. It's, it's a first and second year course, but from what they do read, and if they're quite keen, and they go away and read more of it, is they get through this huge um, theological anthropology slash systematic theology, and only realize at the end in the appendix when he tells them. I haven't used the idea of the image of God at all to develop this very extended theological conversation about what it means to be human. And Kelsey's reason for that is that he doesn't think that there's enough to go on in the, the raw scriptural data to say, what does Genesis 1, 26 and 27, what does that actually mean about being human and being the image of God? So he doesn't think that this needs to be a load-bearing um, concept. And then quite often when my students read that as a very recent text, then they go back to the older tradition with a lot of questions about, you know, well, maybe Aquinas and, and Calvin and Luther and, uh, uh, you know, Augustine going further back, maybe they all have different accounts of the image of God because it's just very hard to say definitively from scripture what this even is. So they come away quite often with questions for me about whether it's a worthwhile idea in the first place then, or whether they can make it a, a second order kind of concept like David Kelsey does. It's not that for neo-Calvinism, but with neo-Calvinism, how can we have some kind of confidence in nailing down what does the image of God mean? That That's a difficult question, James. And one of the things that Alexander Pruss says in his book, One Body, which is his massive tome on the, well, compared to David Kelsey's, I guess it's not massive, but it's about a 400-page discussion on Christians and the body and sexuality. And he talked about how in the very in the very beginning in the preface he says some of the texts of scripture are going to contain what he calls seminal texts. Seminal texts are those sorts of texts that have produced fecund reflection across church history, and to treat those texts as having no other meaning than an intended historical meaning, let's say for Genesis one in the ancient Near East, is to really mistreat the text given how much the Spirit has used that passage to cause 
again, rich theological reflection across church history. So if we treat Genesis 1, 26, 28 as providing a slender sort of piece of evidence toward what it means to be made in the image of God, given that it has actually produced reams and reams of theological reflection on what it means to be the image of God, then perhaps we have misunderstood the passage itself. And I think I completely agree with that observation, even though the term image of God is only used here and there, you know, Genesis 1, and then you have the reference of image and likeness um, in Genesis 5 about Seth's likeness to Adam. And then Genesis 9, as you said, when Noah is um, leaving the ark, this was after the flood, and the image of God and the cultural mandate is repeated to Noah after it was given to Adam that they were to be fruitful and to multiply. And then we see that sort of language again in Genesis 11, in the Tower of Babel, after the Tower of Babel is dispersed, and then they were dispersed so that they might be multiplying. And then we see it in Psalm 8, where mankind and mankind's dominion over the earth will actually lead to the glorifying of God throughout all the earth. And then you see that again in Pentecost, and then you see the same language in Acts chapter 6, as the disciples were multiplying and dispersing. And then you see it again in Revelation, right? Um, all of that seems to imply... Um, again, not that there's a repetition of the terminology image of God, but conceptually and theologically, there seems to be a redemptive historical strand on the image of God. And that really informed Bavings and Kuiper's account. So that's the biblical material part. And so Bavings and Kuiper, as they took a look, take a look at this, this text of Genesis 1, 26, 28, and it says that we're made in the image of God and we're to be fruitful and to multiply. They argue that at least that, that yes, we are ontologically and ethically made to conform to God, and we're meant to be not merely solitary individuals, but we are meant to be orga organized under a corporate organic whole. That Adam and Eve were representatives of humanity, and we had an ethical connection with them. And as we are fruitful and as we're multiplying, we have an organic connection and ethical relation to one another. And we'll talk about what all those terms sort of mean. So you asked a question about how do we balance out the Catholic and tradition emphases on Bobbing and Kuiper, and at the same time, their novel emphases on Bobbing and Kuiper? I guess we'll start with the tradition first, and then we'll talk about the novel ones later on. The tradition, I think two concepts here are really important for image of God for Bobbing and Kuiper. First is the archetype-ectype distinction, right? In classical reform theology, we get this from Franciscus Junius. Junius talks about how God is the archetype of humanity, and humanity, especially the human knowledge of God, is ectypal. If God is the archetype of humanity, and God is the one who has archetypal theology, then God is the source, the font, the origin of all of our knowledge of God. All of our knowledge of God presupposes that God perfectly knows himself in a completely unique way, and God then condescends and accommodates that archetypal knowledge of God to create an ectypal theology so that we might know God according to our finite capacities. So the archetypal knowledge of God is a sort of knowledge that's being mentioned in Deuteronomy 29-29, the secret things belong to the Lord. Or Romans 11, 33-36, who can know the mind of God? It's a rhetorical question. Of course, nobody can know the mind of God. God knows himself absolutely and perfectly. So how do we know God? Well, God accommodates the knowledge of himself so that he could reveal himself now according to the capacity of human beings in human language, in human discourse, in both general and special revelation, the theology of the pilgrim, Franciscus Junius says. And Boving and Kuiper took that paradigm of archetypal knowledge and ectypal knowledge, God's perfect knowledge and our imprint, our analogical knowledge of God, to consider what it means to be made in the image. 
Well, image means that we are ectypes of God. We we too are analogical replicas of God as a human being. We're a physical, we're a visible representation of an invisible God on Earth. If God creates out of nothing, we create out of nature. God creates out of the sheer power of His will and of creativity. We, as creative beings, presuppose the natural world that God has created for us, and we cultivate that creation. For instance, and if God is the absolute unity and diversity. Bobbing and Kuiper argued that human beings have an ectypal or analogical unity and diversity. So that archetypal, ectypal knowledge of God is really, really key um, for Bobbing and Kuiper's theological anthropology. That's very tradition. The second thing to mention is the idea of the covenant of works, which I've already hinted at. That that when God created Adam, God created Adam under the covenant of works. That Adam was created in a state of probation. And Adam was a federal representative for all of humanity. So, if Adam was obedient to God in this covenant, he would be granted a reward: the tree of life. He had to crush the serpents, keep the garden clean, keep the word of God, and he was to be fruitful and to multiply, so that the representatives of God could spread across all the earth. Right now, of course, Adam failed that covenant of works, and because he failed the covenant of works, he and his progeny were plunged. And they were corrupted. They became guilty, and they were corrupted in original sin. Now, the key question for this so-called covenantal or federal view is that um, how can Adam and his sin be imputed to his progeny? How can that be fair? How can God be just in imputing the sins of Adam to his fallen humanity? How can God set aside this one person to be a representative? For the rest of humanity, doesn't that seem unfair? Doesn't that seem like God is imposing on us a kind of legal fiction that connects us to Adam? Well, that's where Bobby and Kuiper come in, and this is the very creative part of it. Well, they said, remember, they were made in the image of God. If we're made in the image of God, there has to be a corporate idea, because God is unity and diversity. We too are united to Adam. So the ethical relation that binds us to Adam. Is not some legal fiction, but it is in keeping with the triune shape of humanity. And this is not social trinitarianism because we're not saying God is like a group of three people or three consciousnesses. They're just cooperating together like one big family. No, God is simple, one essence, three 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 persons. But analogically, in human beings, that looks like an organic whole where there's a unity, and then there's a parts that's connected to that unity, not by way of a metaphysical substance, the way God is. But by way of an ethical relation, there's analogies to that. You know, when a professor falls, the students feel the impact. When a father or mother falls, the kids feel the impact. What the father and mother does impacts their 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 children and the generations after them. So we're never just our own. We're never just autonomous, atomistic individuals. We're always corporately designed to be influenced by one another. We reciprocate with one another, and there's this idea, therefore, of social. Sanctification or social sin, the counterpart, because Bobby and Kaiba are realizing how much human beings are not isolated individuals, but are rather connected deeply because we're made in the image of God because we are triune beings. Yeah, thank you, Gray. That was immensely helpful. And um, just a reminder of reading the chapter, what, what you um, just were doing. And I think it's it's especially what you just pointed out in how. Uh, just getting back to what James said in the beginning, that for me also this was like maybe my second or. Uh, first, first time, my my favorite chapter of this book, um, competing with the one on general revelation, as I also mentioned in that episode, both really excellent and also felt almost like new to me, um, being raised 
in the new Calvinist tradition, which is interesting. Um, what what happened to some of those emphases, like especially the well, the, the strong like the communal atomistic view on the image of God is really, I think, very strong, and um, it also like pretty strongly goes against the grain, I think, of the culture we live in. It's it's like I I, get, I bet many people in and the pews of my church are like uh, they they don't and may, maybe we even we ourselves we don't live this way um we we tend to live very um separate individual lives i think together well this is of course not a very new and daunting statement this is generally recognized but still when you read it like this you're like yeah we we really have um a very different understanding of what it means to be human um compared to to how it looks here and so I think that is that is really something strong. We could talk about I think what how that maybe later on how it has relevance for our, how we think about the church and how important the church is, um, but also just how how much like it, I think it also has repercussions for like how we think about society um, and how we ought to live as humans. Um, it has relevance for like how we face the ecological crisis. Um, as if you if you extend that wall, I think um, with the whole of creation, that we are kind of in an organic unity with all of creation. I think that that has a lot of relevance there as well. Um, so yeah, I think that that's just great. And what what I also really like about and that that it also plays into what you just said is is how it talks about the connection with God, like how how that it, it it kind of keeps the balance between saying that. Um, and th- this was exactly the same in the chapter on general revelation, in in that that like God and the world are distinct, but also inextricably tied to each other. Um, so I think that that's really strong how it how it tries to do that balance, right? Not saying like it's something that is we we can't really touch God. He is so transcendent and far away and different that there's that it's almost deistic or or maybe in a Barthian way. Um, a lot of emphasis on transcendence, but not on the other hand saying that God is a, like a panentheistic view, that God is God is the world, um, and I think that is that is just getting at the heart of what Christianity is, uh, trying to uphold this distinction. Um, and and Bavink, I think, especially Bavink in the first part of your chapter, um, does that so eloquently and, and keeps that balance really well. Yeah, I completely agree. And and that's what just a quick comment, that's what it means to be made in the image of God too, is that you're you're constantly in fellowship with God, whether you're breaking the fellowship or actually keeping the fellowship. Um that that's the question, but but you're always in some covenantal relation with God. And that's what it means to be made in the image. You're never free from God. You're either running away from him or you're running for him. It's very Augustinian. Johann Bobbing, of course, has great great lines on that as well. Yeah, so something that gets said about us third wares is that we, what is it? It's that we only punch right but not left. So I'm going to ask two questions, one of which punches in each direction, but they're not really punches. They're just, um, they're, they're, you know, they're, they're loving. Um, so uh, with what this chapter has to say about neo Calvinism and um, collective. A collective sense of the image of God and and you know, tying this all into the fall. Um, if we're thinking like further on the left side of the spectrum theologically than figures like Bavink and Kuiper, um, there, at least in, in mainstream academic theology in the West, 
um, universalism in terms of salvation is is a really common idea, uh, largely through Karl Barth's influence in the mid twentieth century. Um, why is it that Bevink and Kuiper, as people who you know, they'll talk a lot about universalism, but they mean that in terms of the Catholicity of the faith. They don't mean it in a in, in terms of salvation. So they're not in terms of salvation. They're not universalists, and yet they have this collective sense of you know, they'll talk about collective sanctification, um, collective um, structural guilt and sin and so on, and a, and a collective sense of the image of God. I mean, there's one striking line from Kuiper in your chapter where you say, or where you quote him. And saying that God does not love individuals, God loves the world. So, what is it that produces a figure who can say that, but who isn't, in terms of salvation, a universalist? So that's the punching left question, and the punching right question is: if we take the same quote, "God doesn't love individuals; God loves the world," that'll probably make a lot of evangelicals cry when they hear that, because it's it sounds like the, it's so anti-individualistic, and at least in in the West evangelicalism is so individualistic so um yeah so if you could follow this up after that um what can evangelicalism in a western sense today learn from some of the collectivist um emphases in how figures like Bavink and kuiper think about the image of god and the, and the fall yeah thanks so much for that james and Good points on both, you know, addressing right and addressing left, quote unquote, issues. Um, yeah, I think when Kuiper is saying that, you know, God loves the world and not just individuals, and Bavink has lots of lines like that. God loves humanity. God doesn't just love isolated individuals. God doesn't just care for you and your soul. God cares about you and your ethical relations to everyone, you know. Um, all of that is, is replete in the Reformed dogmatics. I think they're reflecting on. The, again, the grand narrative of scripture of humanity's kingly and representative, representative role in, in creation. So again, that language of the fruitfulness and the multiplication that is given to Adam um, and the dispersion motif throughout Genesis 9 and Genesis 11 as well, and which is again, replete in Pentecost and Acts and, and Revelation, is that humanity was meant to cover the whole globe. And that the, the individual's role in that is to represent God and perpetuate a culture that reflects God across the whole world so that the whole world will be filled with the glory and images of God, right? So, I mean, this is kind of common parlance now in, in biblical studies that in the ancient Near Eastern world, which is the background for Genesis, the gods would leave an idol or an image in particular temples to be representatives of their dominion and authority within that temple and within that domain. And the Christian idea is that, well, we don't make images and idols of God because we are the image of God. The reason why the second commandment is in play, bobbing our use in the reform ethics, is because human beings are the image of God. We're supposed to represent God. And so we're the quote unquote icon, the idol. And we have to, therefore, show that God lovingly is in dominion over the world by our analogical dominion over the world, cultivation of the world. This is a better term because dominion could be after the fall leading us to hubris, and that's not good. So, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 16, I just lectured on this yesterday in class. Um, God is intending to kill the hostility between Jew and Gentile by creating in us, through Jesus Christ, one new man. One new man though many humanities, right? So there's always that corporate idea, Christ is the head of the church, 
and the church is one, and yet the church is composed of tribes, nations, and tongues. So multilingualism, as you have a finance on that, James, is a good thing. The curse of Babel is actually forwarding the dispersion of humanity, and that multilingualism being redeemed is definitely seen in Pentecost and ultimately taken up to church itself. So God has always been interested in one new humanity. Why is that not um, a kind of pantheistic universalism or something like that? Well, it's because it's one new redeemed humanity, which is the alternative to the Adamic humanity. So this is the Capirian idea of the antithesis as well. There's ultimately going to be two humanities, right? Not that there's two, like, ontologically two different kinds of things, but rather there's the Adamic humanity, which is the culture, or to use Augustine's term, the city of man that is informed and animated by love of self. But then there's the city of God that is informed and animated by love of God and others. And notice how the city of God, therefore, is always outward looking, looking to the other, looking to God, right? Whereas the city of man is inward looking, looking to the self-autonomous individualism, right? So these two humanities are right now in a mixed situation where coexisting with one another because of common grace, God is delaying his judgments. But in the last day, there will be a climactic um, separation between those in the city of man and those in the city of God, um, where the city of man will be completely sanctified and consummated, and the city of man will no longer enjoy common grace, right? So that's why it's not it's not going to be universalism. So to the evangelical, I think the reason why evangelicals have had a hard time with this idea of the covenant of works or that we're covenantally connected to Adam or Christ is because of that rampant individualism. Um, I think we forget that Jesus calls us to love our neighbor and the one who is closely in proximity to us is our neighbor. We ought to love them. And we forget that we are created to be fruitful and to multiply. And this idea the nuclear family is just me and my little family or it's just whatever I personally have done is, is radically pretty alien, I think, to the biblical picture of how families work and how um, humanity is intrinsically connected to one another. And that were that picture of the social propagation of humanity. I mean, take a look at how this might be controversial in some circles, but I don't think it should be. For instance, the sins of Babylon and the sins of Egypt and the sins of Sodom, the sins of these, the Roman Empire, for instance, all of these different cities are characterized by way of different sins. But notice it's the sins of this nation, the sins of that nation, the sins of that nation. So there is this idea of perpetual sin that's perpetuated by social generations, right? Or if that's too controversial, maybe zoom into a particular family, right? The quirks of the father and mother and the sinfulness of father and mother tend to be perpetuated in the whole family, right? And so you could kind of zoom out and take a look at the different nations being talked in that way. Or, you know, the sins of a particular bad king in the book of First and Second Kings are perpetuated in the later generations. Cain killed his brother, and the son of Cain, Lamech, killed a young child. So there's that perpetuation. And Cain blame shifted because Adam blame shifted. Cain asked God, you know, am I my brother's keeper? Just the same way that Adam said, this is the woman that you, that, that you gave to me, right? So Cain, the son of Adam, perpetuated the sins of Adam. And Lamech, the son of Cain, perpetuated the sin of Cain. So there's lots of biblical motifs there that challenge us that evangelical sense of, it's just me and my sin between me and God and nobody else's business. You know what I mean? It's, uh, I think, both punch, punching left and right there. Yeah. Yeah, and I, 
it is, this is also maybe a good place to plug in what I said earlier um, about the relevance to ecclesiology of this this anthropology to the church and and the, I think this is also what what Schilder is trying to do is just like drawing the consequences of Bavik and Kuiper and and pushing like a little bit on okay so what does this mean for how relevant the church the community and institution of the church is um, and I think also like for contemporary evangelicalism in the U.S. but just as much in the Netherlands, um, this this is also means to say that the church is not something just like that comes after or is something that adds um, or is like a nice supplement to your individual relationship with God, but it is salvation, right? This is how God works. So this, it's not something that you, okay, so I'm saved and now I go to church and that helps my faith. It's not that you are saved as church. So um, it it there there is no such thing. We could almost say maybe this is pushing too far. There is almost no such thing as individual salvation, right? It's you you it's, the bride of Christ is not just one person. It's the entire church, and that has immediate consequences for what it means to live as a Christian. It means that you live as church, and that is not just yourself. That mm-hmm. is not just your family. Uh, that is, as Jesus yeah. himself says it, it's just like, who is your well, family? Whoever um, follows me is your brother and your sister and your mother. Right. right? So, um, you know, yeah, this I, is, I, yeah, go ahead, go ahead, Gray. Oh, that, that's exactly the emphasis of Richard Gaffin's work that's highlighting this idea of union with Christ. If, if Christ is saving you and the Spirit is saving you, it's saving you by uniting you to Christ, your head of the new yeah. humanity, right? So there, yes, you're justified. You, you yourself as an individual is justified. We could put it that way. And so you're saved, but you're saved unto a new humanity, which is with who has Christ as your new federal head. And so yeah. to say that I could just be saved and attend home church and stay at home with my phone, you know, listening to church home app or something, um, is is to radically miss out on all of the blessings that are in Christ for you, which is to create this new yeah. humanity ultimately. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, that's, that, yeah, yeah, go ahead, James. It's, it's such a, a countercultural thing. So I raised this about evangelicalism because so there's a really interesting book that came out in the 1980s by Dennis Hollinger. It was called Individualism and Social Ethics. And um, it, uh, it was completely fascinating in the way that that book set out. So it was basically a study of... Um, Christianity Today magazine between the 1950s and 1970s and looking at how it presented sin as a concept. And the book argued that consistently over decades, Christianity Today as a flagship evangelical opinion-forming publication assumed an atomistic metaphysic in how it presented the idea of sin. And it consistently denied the organic nature of social relationships and over decades, it consistently put forward that sin is something that comes about through personal, individual decisions. Um, and it's part. Of, so th- that's one part of. I mean, it's, that's a flip side, I guess, to this as well. If we think about the gospel as collect as individual or collective good news, and then the bad news is it pure, kind of individualistic as well, um, and just that whole package of individualism. Um, so I think that the, the fall side of this chapter is is really helpful in shape, maybe shaking up a lot of evangelical, common or widely held evangelical assumptions about what sin is and how it works out, and then 
I mean, you raised the really important point, Marinus, of connecting that to ecclesiology as well. Then, and, and what you know, the, what being a Christian actually looks like, and yeah. whether it's a, a team game or, or a solo sport. And it is interesting. I think that individualism is really exemplified by Cain's remark to God: "Am I my brother's keeper? Like, why are you coming to me when it's about my brother? It has nothing to do with me, right?" And you know, this this has also there's so many influences behind that sort of evangelicalism of me and my own destiny and so on, and me and my own rights, me and my own freedom. I mean, you kind of see this in analytic philosophy as well, in the rise of analytic philosophy, and I think that informs evangelicalism as well, this idea that knowledge is gained by way of an analysis of particular propositions on their own and isolating the particular component parts of each proposition on their own, right? So analytic philosophy was birthed out of a reaction to English and German idealism with its grand motif of understanding, you know, knowledge in terms of seismic shifts in history, or in terms of grand narratives that actually implicate the whole of society and the way your imagination is formed. And Bertrand Russell and Frege were, were reacting to that and were saying, no, that's not how knowledge works. No, let's just isolate particular parts. Um, that's, not, that's not a helpful analysis of how knowledge is because that's unverifiable. And ironically, I think you say that, you see that sort of response too when people talk about social sin or social responsibility. It's unverifiable. Like, what, where, where is the responsibility end or where does it stop? You know, ironically, there's a kind of parallel there. I, I love analytic philosophy, by the way. <laughs> so uh, don't get me wrong. I still want to defend it as, as, as the best forms of it. But there's this idea in there where knowledge is just reducible to component parts. And there is a reaction to holistic thinking. And mm -hmm. Bobby gets into that, too. And I know you mentioned that before the podcast started, James. Yeah. Yeah, and I should say I love Christianity today as well, and I, I write for them sometimes. So this is this is a historic um, analysis of Christianity today in like 1956 to 1976. So, um, right. you know, uh, uh, related to this as well, um, there's one point in the chapter where you write about, um, it's like I quote you here, that analogously sin blinds us such that we now grasp only partial isolated truths rather than the whole. And then you have a quote uh, from Bavinck's Reformed Ethics, Thus, we do not have some knowledge of. Uh, uh, thus, we do have some knowledge of individual verities, but we do not know the truth, the system, the unity of all truth in God, and that the the there, the truth, is Bavinck's own original emphasis. Um, so when I read that quote, it made me think of a distinction that we've discussed quite a lot on the podcast, which is J. H. Bavinck's distinction between world vision and world view, and also you know, Herman Bavinck's way of thinking about this in, in the book Christian Worldview, where worldview isn't something that you have from the get-go it's something that you have to build it's a long slow inductive process and then jh bavinck really sharpens the emphasis there on how in a true sense only god has a proper correct worldview a comprehensive one and you really have to be an infinite being looking in on a finite but vast world to have a a, a correct exhaustive view of that whole thing um so for JH, you know, we start off with our world visions and we're challenged by the gospel to move beyond them. When we were thinking, or when you were talking a moment ago, Gray, about the transmission of sin across generations and how we we inherit fallen assumptions and we can amplify them across generations and, and we're, we're ethically bound to one another and that happens across generations as well. So we're really affected by previous generations. Um it seems to me that that these ideas within neo-Calvinism are all part of a package, I guess. That world vision is is actually one way that you can think about it is that um 
you world vision is in a sense formed by or deformed by what you inherit ultimately from adam right uh, and that's why your, your world vision needs to be reformed by um, what you receive when you come to be in christ absolutely yeah and you know one of the things that bobbing likes to say across his corpus is seeing everything in light of eternity right mm. so in the, in the context of Herman Bavink, before we get to Johann Bavink, maybe. In the context of Herman Bavink, he argues that the non-believer likes to, I mean, the, the non-believer knows lots of truths really well, but they know it in an atomistic fashion, right? They, The non-believing scientist is able to look at the caterpillar and could really dissect the parts of the caterpillar, but misses how the knowledge of the caterpillar is connected to the whole of reality. Um, in that organic way where all of reality is created by God, all of reality manifests the glory of God, right? So I was reading Christianity and Science again over the weekend because it's such an amazing experience to be able to read through this thing in print, in English, and not just struggle through 10 pages of Dutch at a day or something like that. So it was just wonderful to be able to read it over a weekend again. And, and one of the things that Bobbing says that Christianity provides to the university is actually a holism, a kind of holistic perspective where each discipline is seen as parts of a larger whole. And so he's not saying the non-believer has no knowledge of two plus two equals to four or the caterpillar before him, but the non-believer is unable to situate that knowledge within a larger context, that holistic organic view of science. He calls it the organism of science at the very beginning of uh, the chapter on natural sciences. Um, and the non-believer who is normally a materialist in the context of Bobbing is going to, for instance, dissect the human body and say that this is just a bunch of atoms, when really we're more than that. There's something mysterious about personality, right? And that brings us to Johann Bavink. You know, the non-believer is kind of like, you know, the architect who goes into someone's house and only sees the geometry of the house and never sees that this is his friend's home <laughs> and treats it like it's a project and not really somewhere that he's supposed to be a guest and this is his space and things like that. And in the same way, the non-believer might look at the human body and say, wow, what an intricate piece of fleshliness. But to view the patient as merely a fleshly being and not to see that he's got a personality, a will, an intellect, a heart behind those two, is really to misconstrue the parts in light of that larger whole, if that makes sense. So, you know, the neo-Calvinist tradition has been critiqued like, oh, uh, especially in, in some extreme forms of Vantillianism, oh, the non-believer doesn't know anything right? Um, the believer knows everything. Well, we got to be really nuanced about that. And Kuiper even talks about two kinds of sciences, unbelieving science, believing science. Bobbing is more nuanced. It's between organic knowing and atomistic knowing, which I get into in God and Knowledge, one of the chapters there. Organic knowing is situating everything in light of the whole, but atomistic knowing is really only grasping little parts. But because they're just little parts, the whole thing is misconstrued. Um, like the person who is treated like, like just a bag of flesh and really not not a human being. I think in your PhD thesis, you had an illustration about this from like the ingredients of a lasagna and then the complete <laughs> lasagna, right? Uh, did that survive into the book form of God and Knowledge? That, that survived into the book form. Yeah, um, I thought so. I love it. That's great. Yeah, yeah I won't yep. spoil it. So so actually go get that book, guys. All right. <laughs> this is just extremely helpful, I think, just in having like a, a view in science but also with other religions like this week um i took our youth group of our church to a mosque in the neighborhood um they were preparing for um how do you call that an offer faced yeah eat is that yeah. is that it yeah exactly mm -hmm. and um it's just but it's for science but also for other religions like to have this 
like very appreciative view towards him without becoming like the example of um yeah it doesn't really matter which religion you have um i mean i, I was really impressed by i mean this this muslim who was uh, giving us a tour he showed us how he does the prayer and you could see that all the teenagers including myself we were impressed by how he did that like the mm. the deep kneeling right how, yeah. how they do that um yeah, and I know Kuiper was deeply impressed by it when he traveled around the Mediterranean and was in in Istanbul, um, um, at the great mosque, seeing how 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 how, how like zealous and how, how how humble they were in in their, that kneeling practice. And this just gives you tools to say, yeah, that it's they, they understand something really well, um, mm-hmm. but it doesn't mean that their entire system or religion is good. Now they they may understand mm-hmm. parts right. well without yep. getting the whole right. So it. Yeah. It keeps you from being very arrogant and and downward looking on everything. You can appreciate even learn from right, um, mm. even from other faith. You can learn yeah. and also from sciences who who develop like without a, a Christian perspective. Mm. So, and ultimately, that's all just an extension of I think having an Augustinian account of evil actually and a theology of creation that comes from Augustine. That yes, that we all inhabit a world that was made. We all inhabit the same world made by God, and God declared it very good. We have to work with those building blocks. Exactly, so, but but because of the fall, the way that we do so is very disordered, but differently all over the place. Um, so there's that blend of appreciation and critique towards everything. Yeah, and that that puts you in that position that you were describing yeah. there, where you're not arrogant, but you're also not you're not a nihilist and, or no, relativist. Exactly. Yeah. And Christopher Watkins' book really brings this out. So we're not saying you know. Um, it's not a quantitative addition, right? Like, oh, the Muslim gets the prayer, right? We just need to add a proposition about Jesus Christ, right? Mm. He does get the piety and the prayer, right? But it's, it's it's still a distorted form because it's detached from the whole, right? Because what's the motivation for prayer? Where, where it's earning and it's it's piling up good works over bad works or something like that. So we're not saying that oh, the non-believer just needs supplementation, like you were saying, Marinus. The, the non-believer's sense of the human being as just a bag of flesh is yes, partially getting something right, but but because it's so detached from the whole, the part that we got right, our physical nature, is itself mistaken in a sense, right? So Watkin talks about diagonalization in biblical critical theory, and he's saying it's not that we're combining left and right into a, a greater whole, it's that both left and right are groping at this massive truth that we see before us in Revelation, and the image of God is cutting across and transcends the binary between physicalism and pantheism, right? It's not a combination of pantheism and materialism. It's something way more where dignified and you're, you're, you're humbled. So that greater whole idea, an organic whole idea, is so much richer than just, well, the non-believer knows 500 propositions and Christianity adds 12 propositions, and now they have a complete worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's really a difficult balance to be in, I think. Also, just like for, not, not also for theology, but also just for like... Um, Christians who just have a job and don't like uh, and just working every day to to keep this balance. It's it's a difficult, not an easy imagination to have. And I think it's really important that pastors train their people to to look at the world they live in in this way. Like to see to to say both to not become like completely relativistic, um, and also not be just arrogant and and judging and withdrawing from everything. Um, yeah. yeah. Because our differences are epistemic and ethical, not ontological, right? We're still we're mm. all made in the image of God. We're right. all living in God's world. We might have epistemic differences. We might behave morally differently, but it's still the same world. Mm. 
very Augustinian. I love yeah. it. Um, to change the topic slightly, uh, because I think this is such an interesting example of a rabbit, uh, you know, rabbit hole that we could go down with Kuiper and Bavink, and it's dealt with explicitly in this chapter. I just want to run this by you, Gray, to make sure that I've understood it correctly, and then therefore it could be maybe really interesting for readers. So the question of why fallen humans uh, are redeemable, that there's a gospel for fallen humans, but um, there isn't a gospel for fallen angels. And I think that the assertion that there isn't a gospel for fallen angels is a very consistent assertion across the whole narrative of scripture. Um, You have um, angels longing to look into the gospel as it applies to human beings. You have in Revelation, um, it looks like a very definitive um, um, eternal rejection of fallen angels and so on. Um, So what comes across in this chapter that I find so interesting and, and really clear and helpful to think about is that in the creation of um, angels, according to Bavink and Kuiper, they, they're created in their final perfect state. Like they're not created in a state of becoming. Or we could think about it in the, in the categories of protology, so first things, and eschatology, less things. So in Neo-Calvinism, um, you have, uh, again, a very consistent, across the, um, across the tradition, a consistent view that protology is eschatologically oriented, or is eschatological in character. So protology contains eschatology. Um, the doctrine of the last things is baked into the reality of the first things. So the, the creation is made for recreation or for consummation or for glorification. That's there from the beginning. And actually, if you read a figure like Gerhardus Voss, um, eschatology actually comes before um, soteriology. So the, so the glorification, the doctrine of last things, is there before the doctrine of salvation because um, protology is eschatological in its character. But this works out differently for angels and for humans, because if we think about it like this, for angels, their protology and their eschatology are their first things and last things, you know, the state they're created in and the final state, the highest that they could ascend to be, is the same thing. And that's the state in which they fall. And therefore, I think if I've understood the chapter right, that's at least part of the explanation of why they're not redeemable because they've fallen in their complete state. Whereas for humans in Neo-Calvinism, and I would just argue in the Bible, um, protology and eschatology are really stretched out. So um, the state in which the world comes into being and humans are created is not their final state. Um, So they're they're just drawn out quite considerably. Um, And the state in which humans fall is not in their complete state. So they're made in a state of becoming and they haven't reached Mm. the end of that yet. And then the gospel is actually um, solving the problem of sin that enters into the equation that stops protology from proceeding into eschatology. So is is that at least part of, I mean, obviously we can get into, you know, the will of God and election and divine decrees and so on as to um, why there is a gospel for humans and not for angels. But that that comes across in this chapter as a significant part of the story anyway, that angels fall in their completed state because eschatologically that's already been realized for them at creation, their eschatological state. They're already perfect to an extent and yet they fall. Whereas for humans, um, we've, we fell at a, at a different, um, stage of eschatology uh, the, on the path of eschatology towards yeah. or protology towards eschatology. Yeah. 
um, I think that's that's at least part of the answer. And human beings are in a state of becoming, and so therefore they have a trajectory that is still before them, and it's not yet finalized. But I also think, and I probably need to review some of the material in the dogmatics here. But but Bobbing has some really arresting lines of why human beings, as made in the image of God, make them intrinsically able to be redeemed, because as image bearers we have a connection with a federal representative, whereas an angel has no possibility of a substitute given for them because they are not connected to one another by blood relation in the way that human beings are. So when we think about human beings as made in the image of God in the way that angels are not, there's a unity and diversity motif. Adam or Christ as a federal head that unites all of humanity, whereas angels do not have a federal head. And hence, they do not have a representation, representation because they're not made in the image of God. And further, human beings are connected to angels in the sense of we have reason and we have religiosity. But we're also connected to the animal world because we have our blood relations. We procreate in a way that angels do not. And the animals are related by blood, but they're not related religiously and ethically because they're not image of God. Angels are religious and ethical, but they're not related by blood and they're not united by a federal head because they are not made in the image of God. So Boving takes this older idea of humanity as between the angels and the animals and combines the spiritual and the material world. And hence he calls human beings the microcosm, right? Like animals were connected by blood, but like angels were connected um, religiously. Like animals, however, because we're connected by blood, we can have a a corporate representation. But the corporate representation is not merely by familial bond or by bloodline, but it could also be an ethical bond in a way that angels do not have, if that makes sense. So why can human beings be redeemed? It's also because we have a substitute. It's also because we have a federal representative that's not just an alien representative it's actually someone who is like us a human being made unto our own human nature whereas an angel doesn't you know one angel is not federally connected to the other because each angel is this unique thing apparently that's that's something that bobbing tries to drive home in, in the dogmatics and also thomas aquinas in the background as well right yes absolutely aquinas the angel is a unique species yeah yeah, yep, yep. Yeah. Um, with with an organic spin, it's an or, it's an organically codified Aquinas view on this mm. perspective. Yeah. Wow. So Bavink was a Thomist. <laughs> yeah, a romantic Thomist on on some issues. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think that whole discussion is just is really interesting. Um, something that that you hint at maybe at one point in Kuiper's views on um, Adam before the fall is. When you talk about how for um, for Kuiper, it's in, it's in Common Grace. You, you quote Kuiper that um, that uh, that at creation, um, the first humans had original righteousness, an unhindered body, and the perfections of wisdom and holiness, um, while yet facing a, a moral battle um, through which he could be brought to the fullness of life. So the idea of an unhindered body here. Um, and having original righteousness and the perfections of wisdom and holiness uh, for Kuiper is really fascinating. And as far as I'm aware, very idiosyncratic. Uh, so I'm thinking here of what he writes in the early chapters of Pro Reggae 1, um, where he has, as far as I'm aware, a, a very odd and, and unique account of Adam and Eve before the fall. And when I read this, 
um, Adam and Eve almost struck me as Tom Bombadil style characters from Lord of the Rings. So, you know, Tom Bombadil has this backdrop of, of um, the world around him where there are all kinds of potentially frightening things. Um, there are all kinds of natural causes that the world could be a dangerous place. Uh, you know, it's full of life, but also um, there, there could be dangers out there. But Tom Bombadil is completely serene. Like, the world out there seems to have no effect on him to take him for, to anything other than life. Like Death just doesn't seem to have a, have a hold on him. It can't latch on. And, and Bombadil is very serene. And Kuiper's a kind of Adam and Eve before the fall is like that. Um, so Adam and Eve had... Um, they were like like miracle makers walking around the earth. So the, the way that Kuiper gets into this is actually talking about Jesus in the Gospels and the miracles that Jesus performs. And Kuiper says that Jesus actually did all of this through the power of his unfallen human nature. So when Jesus commands a storm to, to be still, or when he multiplies multiplies loaves and fishes, he's not that's not actually, um, let's say, power that, that is drawn from his divine nature. He's actually able to do that because he's human, but he's mm. the second Adam, and he's just doing things that the first Adam could have done as well. Mm. And that's part of the serenity of Christ in this world, that he doesn't, uh, like death Death has no hold at all on Jesus. Uh, he, death can mm. only catch Jesus if Jesus lets death catch him. Mm. No one can take my life from me unless I lay it down. And that's how Jesus walks through this world. But Kuiper says that that's actually, that's what an unfallen um, uh, impeccable human existence should be like and that's also why jesus um because he's an unfallen human is able to, to heal other people because he exudes life and not only can death have no claim on him um mm -hmm. he actually can reverse the effects of death and the effect um before he comes across them so kuiper i mean he spec he speculates a bit on this shall we say i find the ideas really tremendously um attractive in lots of ways but you know, Adam and Eve, when they're commanded to be fruitful and multiply to spread across the earth, um, are spreading across an earth in Kuiper's imagination that on its own presents all kinds of dangers to human beings. Um, you know, oceans, um, waves, earthquakes, um, mm -hmm. you know, rocks that fall down the side of a mountain as humans are spreading out across the place. But hypothetically for Kuiper, let's say um, Adam had fallen and broken his leg. Eve could have healed it just as Christ healed um, the the illnesses and injuries of people around him. Uh, so they, they had no fear of that at all. And even, so, I mean, for Kuiper, there's predation in the animal kingdom, but mm -hmm. um, the unfallen Adam and Eve had no fear of animals. They could just command them to um, to be still. And they were, yeah. um, so the Adam and Eve have, the, their words have a create almost the creative power in this world not in the sense of being god and being able to speak matter into being right but they had their words were words of power as the image of god that had a mastery over the creation um and kuiper says that this was an aspect of being human that was lost in the fall yeah, um, yeah. which i find completely fascinating to, to have that christology in the first place but then to like retrospectively yeah. to rethink um your adamology and your evology it's a very Adamic Christology. And, you know, mm -hmm. because perhaps we can say Christ was the perfect original human being, he had perfect communion with the Spirit. And hence, mm -hmm. in dependence on the Spirit as well, he can be um, working in conjunction with the Spirit in all those ways. So there's a kind of Adamic Spirit Christology. Somebody needs to write an article on that, by the way, because mm -hmm. there's lots of essays out there on 
John Owen spirit Christology, and there's some kind of projection there motif to an Owen. So somebody should pick that up. Maybe James, you could write an essay on that too. But um, yeah, I, I think I'm thinking I'm, about it. Yeah, yeah, I'm very attracted to that idea as well. It's um, it's 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 definitely I think implied in Genesis chapter nine, right? When the cultural mandate is repeated to Noah, it it's a little bit different than in Genesis chapter one because now there is the bloodshed of men. And any animal that comes after man, blood will be asked of the animal as well. So it's almost implying that before the fall, there would be no danger and therefore no fear on Adam with respect to animal predation, for instance, because blood will not be shed of man. And so Adam had royal dominion over the animal kingdom. So I think the Genesis 9 material has been and and, and has given exegetical... Um, impetus to a kind of reading in that respect as well. So I, I'm I'm very open to that idea too. And I think we try to hint at that in the chapter. But again, it goes more deeply than the chapter. Yeah, and maybe just to... Well, this this is of course a question. So I'm just having some second thoughts whether it works exegetically also. I mean, isn't... Yeah. Isn't like when you read the Gospel of Mark, for example, and take... The way and the, the constantly the question is for Mark, who is Jesus? Um, he and can do this. like that, that he can do this. There's the storm, there's the healings, there's the, the authority in his sayings. And it seems as if he is saying between the lines, the conclusion is this is the Son of God and not this is it, this is a man. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying this necessarily conflicts with what Kuiper is saying, mm. but. He seem, it seems as if like the Gospels point towards, I think what the church has always read, like what, what the Gospels are pointing to is this is a God-man, right? Um, and not just a man in his original form. Right. Um, although maybe we could interpret it that way, but that's just yeah. a thought I, think, I had. So Kuiper's argument would be, yes, this is a God-man, but the man part of it is different to, like this is the second Adam, the man part of God, man, and therefore he can do what the first Adam could do as well. Yeah. So the who is this question? I mean, the Mark two chapter on who 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 has the authority to do this is in the context yeah. of forgiveness of sins, and I don't think Adam would have had that. But there are, I think, other passages that seem to highlight. Oh, this is the Son of God in the sense of the Son of Man, right? Daniel seven, you know, Luke chapter three connects him to. Adam as the son of God, and then he is get he gets tempted by the serpent in the wilderness. That's him as a man. Um, yeah. Anyway, it is it is definitely there's some definitely some speculation involved. But like the question, would Christ have become incarnate had there been no fall, which has, let's say, uh, produced much literature of recent years? Um, yeah, it's that, a, that, it's that's a, another obvious obvious. Uh... Uh, objection to it, the speculation which Kuiper sometimes right. does do, but yeah. it's fun, so, but it's risky. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, right. that's why yeah. we love Kuiper. He's fun and risky. You know? Yes, exactly. So it's so great. Hey, so um, maybe slightly different, but coming from this idea of dominance, I, ju- I just think it's well. What we have often been doing in this podcast is correcting um, common misunderstandings of Neo Calvinism, and and I really need to correct a common Dutch misunderstanding here, um, which I come across very often um, when people talk about New Calvinism and it, it 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 closely relates I think to the one we've talked about more often um, namely that New Calvinism is triumphalistic um, 
So here that's the idea that this idea of image bearer connected very strongly to the cultural mandate. I think what Kuiper does connect to the idea of kingship of dominion over creation um, has led almost directors or is, is exemplary of how also Christianity and maybe especially neo-Calvinism is partly responsible for this whole, this whole, maybe not responsible, but at least theologically sustained what led to um, inequality and also an ecological crisis that we're now facing, right? So this idea that human is like the the crown of creation and can dominate over over animals and over maybe um, and over creation and just like extract uh, everything that's in creation, just misusing creation. Um, well, I think if you read this chapter, you can the it brings you to like almost the opposite conclusion uh, because well, on the one hand, humanity is an organic unity. So um, this means that all humans in creation are like, in the same way, are made in the image of God, right? So they're all um, have the very, so never can one human rule over the other, which I think is a, a big part of this um, exploit of creation also. Um, and, and, and on the other end, it's not so much the emphasis in the chapter, although it, it is here that also uh, this, this um, humans being, uh, getting this this role of a steward over creation is also part of the creation as an organic whole, um, and especially if you look at the entire cosmos, entire creation as an organic whole in which humans have this part, uh, altogether reflecting um, something of the the, the the unity and diversity of the triune God. Um, I think that that would be like a very strong case against um, ecological exploit of creation and 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 also like um an increasing decrease of biodiversity like just less diversity in creation because of what humans saw it's it all runs like completely against uh the grain of abavik and kuiper arguing here um so i yeah i think this is good to do i think to to uh debunk that that it's 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 just too easy i mean of course you can take this idea of the cultural mandate as you can but often you, you can't take it into that kind of directions. And especially words like kingship and dominion, you can easily say like, oh yeah, we humans can rule over creation and use it to our own ends. But it's it doesn't do justice, I think, to what Bavik and Kuiper are getting at and willing to willing to do and arguing for. Um yeah, so that's it. You, you you can of course correct me if you think I've 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 gotten this wrong, but I think this is also a straight application of what, what you present in this chapter here. Completely agree. You know, I think another way to talk about the cultural mandate is a cultivation mandate. It's it's not something that is, God is not giving you license to run havoc on creation. God is asking human beings to lovingly um, represent God and to cultivate creation in a way that God loves creation. Right. So yes, hubris can be the result of the cultural mandate, but hubris is a fallen use of the cultural mandate only after the fall. Yeah. Yeah, I agree, Gray. Um, something that I really like about this chapter is the emphasis on how um, one way that the neo-Calvinist tradition expresses the creature-creator difference um, is to say that because this is God's world, the world of the Trinity, um, everything in this world is like the triune God, and yet the triune God is unlike everything else. 
which I think is a really it's a helpful nuance to take in drawing out the creature creator distinction in teaching us how to value the world in which we live, um, and also how to worship God as the creator of this world and and as its redeemer as well. Um, so this has been a really um, helpful um, discussion. I've enjoyed being part of it with with each of you guys. So we thank you for joining us for this episode of Grace in Common. Um, if you enjoyed the episode, please do rate um, the podcast uh, through whichever podcast app you use. And please remember to subscribe as well. Then you get these automatically downloaded whenever we release a new episode. If you like the content and you want to support what we're doing, we have a Dropbox, um, which has been used so far to fund a new mic for Marinus to get our audio quality um, up. Um, so the Dropbox details are there as well in the show notes as are references to books and articles that we've mentioned in the discussion today. So we thank you again for joining us. This is Grace and Common.